Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. Today, I am joined by someone I've known for more than a decade. It's hard to believe how time has flown, but we initially met at Florida State as graduate students, me as a master's student and her as a PhD student, and we have reconnected off and on throughout the years frequently at our GMTA conferences. So I am delighted to introduce to you Carol Payne. Let's not delay this conversation any longer. Hello, Carol. Hi, babies. Great to see you. Thanks for inviting me to do this. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to. So let's just get started with a background question. Tell us about how you got to where you are and what are you doing today? Well, um, let's see. I did my master's in piano performance at Catholic University and I graduated back in 1982. And I spent the following year practicing probably six hours or more a day because I was entering piano competitions. And the most famous one I did was the Queen Elizabeth in Belgium. Once I got all that stuff out of my system, I got a job at a college in Florida where I taught piano, I taught group piano, music theory, music humanities, and those kind of classes for 20 years. And I also had a private home studio during this time. And I performed solo, duo piano, chamber recitals. I played in the symphony and recorded four CDs. Oh, and my husband and I raised two children. Both are musicians. We were, it was a busy time. <laughs> and then... Finally, in 2007, I quit my college teaching, teaching job, went back to school at FSU, and that's where I met you, getting my PhD in pedagogy. In 2011, we moved to Atlanta, and I became the director of the Music Preparatory School at Clayton State University for seven years, which I loved. And I retired from there in 2018. Now I do some judging and presenting for local associations. Unfortunately, I was scheduled to present an hour-long session for the 2020 Chicago, uh, Chicago MTNA National Conference, which was, of course, canceled. Can you take us a little further back into your history? How did you get started in music? When I was about eight years old, my family had a little keyboard, portable keyboard. And I used to play songs by ear that I heard at school or on the radio. And one day my grandmother was over and she heard me doing that. And a few days later, I came home from school and there was a spinet piano in the living room. <laughs> it was so exciting. So I started lessons and I never looked back. So one thing that really sticks out to me in your story, and I'm sure it stuck out to our listeners, is the fact that you had this full-blown career, then you left your career so that you can go back to school. What was that decision process like? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I just felt kind of like there was more that I wanted to know. And I was in this in Pensacola, Florida, which is not a large town. And I, I kept thinking, you know, I think I'm ready to go to do something different. I've been doing that job for 20 years and my husband was all for it. So I had received on an email, a summons from Columbia. I think it was, yeah, Columbia University in New York. And they were offering a doctorate in piano teaching online. And my husband said, oh, you wouldn't have any colleagues. That wouldn't be any fun doing that online. You ought to, you ought to you know, go somewhere. Well, Florida State University is three hours from Pensacola. And, uh, but we talked it over and we made it work. I just got a, a little apartment there in Tallahassee and we go back and forth on the weekend. So it was really tough quitting my job because I liked my job. There was nothing wrong with it. I just felt like I wanted to do more. Was that a difficult financial decision to make? Not too bad because at Florida State, they gave me a full ride. So, and a stipend for teaching. So yeah. it wasn't. And at that point, uh, were your kids already grown up and out of the house? 
one of them was a music major at FSU at the time. Did you know that? I did not. What was that like going to the same school as your child? And he was majoring in uh, classical guitar. So he was there practicing sometimes. I, we got together every now and then. I tried not to get in his way. <laughs> did did you um, become roommates and share an apartment? <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> I stayed out of his hair. I wasn't there to get in his way. <laughs> That's very cool. I had no idea. I also had no idea that you were doing a bit of commuting, actually, back and forth. So, wow, what a life. Let's Let's talk a little more about... Who influenced you into going into this path? Because making a decision to become a professional musician is not always an easy one. Yeah, that's true. Well, I always knew since the time I was probably in the sixth grade that I wanted to be a pianist. So there was never any question about that. I just knew I was going to do it. I had a, my grandmother that bought the piano and my mother were just really good about supporting me. You know, there, I have five brothers and two sisters. It's a very big family. I'm somewhere in the middle. And my mom would still drive me to lessons and the recitals and everything that needed to be done. So I really owe a lot to her. And then my college teachers were just wonderful. I really just had the best, I think. So um, in a family that's that big, were you the only one who was taking music lessons or were your siblings also taking lessons and you guys were taking turns having a, a practice session on the piano? No, they ask. In fact, they asked now, why didn't we get lessons? And I would say, well, did you ask for lessons? And no. <laughs> so that's why I I'm sure I drove them crazy with my practice. Well, I'm sure they remember it fondly. <laughs> so tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? Well, I learned about MTNA from my professor at the University of West Florida. And he sponsored me, and I've been a member of MTNA now for 36 years, first in Florida and then the last 11 years in Georgia. And I've got so many good memories of the hundreds of events I've done with, the, with my students. And I think about all the many teachers that have become really good friends of mine over the years from the organization. I can't imagine what my career would have been like if I hadn't been a member, because all the support and fellowship from all these teachers, it's, it was just wonderful. I think all my students got so many advantages through participation in the events and the competitions, too. So you talked earlier about being in retirement and still staying a little active in terms of like adjudication and giving presentations. Do you continue to stay involved with your local association even through retirement? And what is that interaction like? Has it changed at all now that you you're not managing a full studio? Well, I'm hosting our luncheon for the Atlanta Music Teachers tomorrow in my condo, so <laughs> I'm still pretty active with them. And I'll tell you what, something that I, I don't do is I don't volunteer to be an officer anymore because I've already been, I've had state officer positions in Florida and Georgia over the years. And I've been the president of Atlanta Music Teachers and secretary and vice president. I've already done a lot of that. And since I'm not actually teaching students right now, I decided that I would, I'm on the board, but I'm not actually running anything. And I go to the meetings too. Yeah, that's great. Because I really enjoy it. And the other hand, I don't do a lot of like go to their recitals and things because I also sometimes judge for events and I don't want to know who their students are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure they appreciate your continued involvement and support. That's great. <laughs> so describe your journey as a teacher. How have you changed? Well, when I first started teaching, when I first got my master's degree, 
I was very strict about my students. They had to do certain etudes. They had to you know, learn a certain way. They weren't allowed to play other kinds of music. And as the years went by, I think I mellowed out a little bit. <laughs> I started thinking, well, you know, it's okay if they play good quality pop type music. It's been arranged by teachers and pedagogues. And then, then later on, I got more where I thought, well, the students who are, you know, really serious, I'm still very picky with, and I would do um, the same etudes and so forth and repertoire. And then, um, but all of them, I made them learn how to do lead sheets and how to sight read as well as possible, because I think those are two of the most important things that they can use in their life, harmonizations and sight reading. Yeah. One thing that I intended to ask way back when you were talking more about your background is the fact that your kids are musicians. And so obviously they took music lessons while their mom was a professional music teacher. What was that relationship like? And were you fairly hands on with their education and their practicing at home? My daughter took piano lessons for 12 years with another teacher friend of mine. And uh, we traded, we bartered for things. And that worked out really well because I could tell that it would be a conflict for me a little bit teaching her. She did with personalities, but I would help her practice. And then my son was the opposite. He did not, he was so shy. He didn't want to take lessons with another teacher. In fact, all I had to say was, well, if you don't want to practice, then I can get you to take lessons with Mrs. So-and-so. And he go, no, no. <laughs> and so I taught him till he discovered the guitar. So probably five years. Yeah. What kind of materials did you use in lessons with him? Or was it kind of the same? Did you kind of step it up because it was your own child and you needed him to be a child prodigy? No, not at all. I think I used the favor method with him. It was fairly new back then. And he enjoyed that. So we did that. And he did some things like sonata contests and little competitions and so forth. He did pretty well at piano, although now he would say he can't play at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's always a fascinating conversation to ask parents who are teachers whether or not they would be willing to teach their own students. So the fact that you didn't teach one, but you taught the other is interesting. And you you kind of made that decision, it sounds like, based on personality and fit. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and that's, I think that perhaps brings the conversation to the fact that the fit of personality between teacher and student is so important that maybe we're not the right fit for every student that comes our path. The fact that you didn't teach your own daughter on the basis of personalities speaks a lot to that. So thank you for sharing that nugget. What are your some of your favorite memories as a teacher? I have a lot of good memories, but one the most recent ones that I like to think about are when I was teaching at Clayton State in the prep program, I had a group of two groups of of little kids that I did in a class. So one of them was six students and I used to arrange music specifically for them. So they did things like some of the things out of their regular books, but also things like that I arranged by Bruno Mars or classic rock or Christmas songs. And then we would line them all up because Spivey Hall is where we do our recitals and they only had two pianos. So we'd use the large benches and put three kids at each piano. So I had to arrange it so they could play on two pianos. It was really fun. And then they would rehearse bowing and entering and so forth. And they just said, I'm sure they have great memories of that. I have some videos too. I like to look at now and then, but that was really fun. Uh, do you have any of those arrangements saved and can anyone access or purchase them? <laughs> I don't know. I'd have to look back around and see. I, I don't keep my PC anymore. So they were all on there. I'll look. Yeah, well, that's like a lot of effort, and you (laughs) want to be able to reap the rewards of that effort, it seems. 
That's awesome. That's awesome that you were invested enough to go that extra mile for your students, though. I'm sure they loved it, made them feel very special. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects you are currently working on? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I, as you know, I did the scale presentation that you came to at the GMTA. I think that was in 2019. And, um, so obviously I was at the presentation and maybe some of our listeners were, but can you summarize a little bit of that presentation for our listeners who weren't at that presentation? Yes. I think I've done that presentation seven or eight times. I've done it in Georgia. I've done it in Flo uh, Florida State Conference, and I've done it in Richmond, Virginia, and some other local association. And the topic always surprises the teachers because they never question the tr traditional scale fingerings or wonder how they came to be. And I like doing the presentation because I was the same way. I never, I just played the scales the way I was taught, and I never thought about whether or not that fingering was was good or I would use it in repertoire playing. So the topic really is about who came up with these scale fingerings and why do we continue to play them that way? There are some, some problems with the left hand if you look at the scales carefully. Um, some thumb crossing unders that are very awkward in descending patterns in the left hand. And um, I used to wonder about that because my left hand would get tired when I played scales repeatedly. And then I started thinking about it and it took me about two years to come up with all the changes. And also I'd look at minor scales fingerings too. So it, it sounds like a boring topic. <laughs> the first time I was going to do the presentation in Florida, Dr. MacArthur, who was a, my advisor, said, you should make sure to serve donuts. <laughs> then people will come. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm trying to remember the presentation, and it, it has been quite a few years, but I think maybe you said this, or maybe it just kind of like bounced around in my head enough times to, to kind of synthesize itself and connect to other ideas. But um it has it had something to do with seeing scales in the context of like actual repertoire and how I, I think you mentioned this, how how we would actually play those scales in like a Mozart concerto or a Beethoven sonatas and realizing that, no, we're not actually using stand quote unquote standard fingering when we play it in context. Is that a correct summary of that? That is. And it's just the left hand. The right hand ones are all fine. But it's the left hand that suffers. And those are scale pattern uh, fingerings that you would not use. In fact, you would actively avoid them in repertoire. Yeah. And I think it had something to do with, sorry, uh, I hope my memory is not off here, but it had something to do with the relationship between black keys and white keys and the use of the thumb in relation to that. Is that correct? Right. Because every scale, when you play the right hand ascending, every scale, plays the thumb out under the black, under, sorry, after a black key, everyone. So if you play the ascending right hand, every scale, major scale, the thumb comes after a black key. The same should happen in the left hand because it's to be in the descending pattern, sorry, in the left hand, because it's the opposite of the right hand. And so you do that and you find out that you don't put your thumb after the black key on all the scales. Sometimes you put your thumb after the fourth finger for no good reason. <laughs> Yes, 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 I remember that. Yeah, thank you so much for that presentation. <laughs> is that the presentation that you were going to give at the national conference in Chicago? No, no, completely different. What was that going to be about? Well, that one was, I was giving that presentation with my friend Michelle Huang. I'm not sure if you remember Michelle. Um, our session was designed to give tools to teachers and professors that would help them advise their students in their careers. So after the con conference was canceled, I submitted an article to the MTNA and you can read it on their website. It's called The Ins and Outs of Independent Teaching, Guiding Prospective Music Teachers. 
So it's how to how to help your student think of a career in teaching. And what are some tools that you point readers to in that article? Well, mostly it's it's telling students where they might expect to teach, who they want to teach, how to set it up. Um, Michelle covered a lot of the publicity, how to get students, and that's you know it's stuff that people know, like we all know, and we see articles all the time in the in magazine. But it's specifically designed for the teach how to uh, help your student who might want to be a teacher. Great, thank you for that. Any other pedagogical projects that you're working on currently? Well, another topic I'm thinking about, and this is probably contentious. <laughs> is why we force non-performance piano majors to memorize their repertoire. In fact, I'm also wondering why all performance majors must memorize everything. I sometimes think there could be two tracks, one where repertoire is by memory and one not. Like if you were a performance major and, and you wanted to memorize literature and go on to be on the Van Kleinberg competition, you would go on this track and then you could still be a performance major, but not somebody who's gonna be doing competing, and, but still do difficult, challenging repertoire and go on this track. I'm kind of in the agreement with people who say that memorization is a separate skill from performance. Because, I mean, memorizing could, you could think, oh, it's a parlor trick. I can memorize, you know, at one point, I personally had like almost four hours of music on hand in my head because I was doing those competitions. And I would play at a recital and somebody would say, the most common thing somebody would say after the recital is, how do you remember all those notes? And I would think, that's disappointing. Why didn't they say, oh, I love the music. Oh, you, you know, it just really sounded so nice. It meant a lot to me. So, no, everybody always says, oh, how do you remember all those notes? And I just think it's not, it's not that impressive to me that people memorize all that stuff because you either can memorize well or you can't. So that's, that's my latest thinking is that I think, well, I'm not the only one. <laughs> there are a lot of famous people have been saying that too. And I think it really discourages people from majoring in music because they can't memorize well and also contributes very much to performance anxiety. Then let me bring up this iPad and page turn pedal. I've been using one of those since 2014. I've been to the Atlanta Symphony many times now where performers, solo piano players will get up there with that. And people don't even notice because pianists sit with their side to the audience. If you're a singer, I can see that because you're looking, you have to, people have to see the expression on your face. You're gonna be in an opera or whatever. There's reasons for you to memorize your music. But for piano, I really don't see it. I know people will say, well, it doesn't, you don't internalize the music so well. Apparently they think chamber musicians are not real musicians then because they never memorize their music. <laughs> so nobody does. Who does? Those violinists don't have to anymore. Uh, only They just make piano people do it. And it all started with Franz Liszt. I blame him. <laughs> yeah, it certainly does add a lot of pressure. And I have noticed that there is a greater presence of iPads um, and using music because the iPad is so, so slim. And you can set it up in such a way that it's unobstructive, like we don't really notice it or see it. So, yeah. Let me say about that. Um, so when when I was teaching college for many years, like I said, to, probably 25 years, I would get upset because my student could only learn two pieces a semester because they had to memorize them. And I kept thinking there's so much repertoire. You know, in four years, how many pieces is that? It's not very much. And they, they could have been doing three times that much if they didn't have to memorize all of it. I mean, I can see memorizing maybe some of it, but it just seems to me like that requirement is discouraging in many ways. Yeah, I can see that. So I'd be interested <laughs> to hear the further development of this topic one day. So now turning to another topic that we've started touching on, actually, what do you think about the future of classical music in society in the 21st century? 
It's often said that classical music is losing popularity and that all attendees at the symphony have white hair. You know, I've been hearing this since 1970. I don't buy it. <laughs> sure, a lot of public audiences are, are older for various reasons because they can afford tickets or they have more leisure time or more life experience causing them to have more appreciation. But I'm heartened by the number of views that classical musicians get on YouTube. Consider how many people would have seen or heard a famous pianist 100 years ago, probably in their lifetime, maybe a couple thousand people. One video by Yuja Wang has 8 million views. So around the world, more people than ever have access to classical music performance. And I think that bodes very well for the future. I also think that there are YouTubers that are doing some really creative things with classical music that are drawing in younger audiences. Like my younger students always watch the two set videos. Do you watch those? No, I haven't seen that. Oh, you're going to have to you need to check them out. So it's T-W-O set, S-E-T. I think they're based out of Australia, maybe New Zealand. I'm fairly certain it's Australia. And they do a lot of comedic things with it. And yeah, it's, it's hilarious. I mean, it's made a, their running joke is that you're, you have to practice 48 hours every day or something like that. So. They're pretty funny. You should definitely check them out. And and they're great musicians, too. I mean, like, they really can play. They're violinists, and so they sound great. Did you see the, um, let's see, I think it was in Chicago. I believe it was in Chicago. The National Conference was probably about five years ago or six years ago. They had Igudsman and Jew, you know, those people. It's these two guys. One plays the violin, one plays piano. And um, I went and sat in the front row. It was so fun. They're just wonderful musicians, and they're hilarious. Yeah, I, I do like that kind of thing, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't there, but I have seen some of their YouTube clips and that's a lot of fun. And so I do think that there's a lot of creative people out there that's attracting younger audiences because they're just making it so fun and accessible. You know, you don't have to pay a $30 ticket in order to watch a YouTube video. So that's great. Now, here's our very last question. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and interprofessional life. I guess I would refer you back to the, the article that I sent in to MTNA because that it has a lot of those top, I mean, just so many things I could think of. Probably the best thing I can think of is get as good as you can on your instrument. I mean, just practice and get as good as you possibly can on your instrument before you enter college. Because once you get in college, then you're, you can spread out the, the ideas you have for how you wanna spend your career. There's a lot of things you can do besides performance, or in addition to, like, say, I we have one colleague that we went to school with. Do you remember Roberto? Yes, yes, I do. Well, he directs. He is the direct one of the directors of Hamilton, music directors, and uh, he was here like lately at the Fox Theater last year. And he was a performance major, undergraduate major. He got very good at piano, and then he ended up going. He's on Broadway for heaven's sakes. So you never know what you're going to end up doing, but. The reason he, he's where he is is because he got very, very good on his instrument first. So I think that would be your, your main focus. And then once you get to college, you can start branching out a little bit. Yeah, I love that advice. And that um, echoes a bit of my own thought process. You know, right before we started recording for this interview, we talked about the fact that I got my master's degree in pedagogy, but then I got my doctorate in performance. And that that was a bit of my thinking process, realizing that, Okay, 
in order to become the best teacher that I can be, I just need to be the best pianist I can be so that I can be a better teacher. Because there's only so much you can learn about teaching in a classroom. At some point, you just have to exit the classroom and start making your own mistakes and realizing, <laughs> oh, wait, when my teacher told me to lesson plan, that's why, you know, you can't just wing it, things like that. So. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much for that advice. And thank you for this chat, Carol. It is always a joy to see you, um, whether online or in person at our conferences. And I hope we have many opportunities to continue bumping into each other going into our next decade of friendship. Um, you are so much fun. And thank you so much for your investment in GMTA and MTNA. And thank you so much for your continued involvement in this organization, even into retirement. So Usually I close these interviews with saying, I wish you happy teaching and happy students, but instead I will say, I wish you happy retirement. <laughs>